Well, it is a joy to worship with you today and to sing these songs that are so rich in the gospel. So the gospel is good news, not just for those who are lost. The gospel is good news even for those who have been found. And I need the gospel preached to me each and every day because Christ is our life. And I need the gospel preached to me in song and I need the gospel preached to me in sermons. <laughs> and so it is a joy even to be going through our study of First Peter we think about what does it mean to be born again, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, find new life in him, and then live it out in this world. Because this new life has been given to us not for us to hide it under a basket, but for us to be put on a stand so that all the world would see the salvation and the grace that only Christ can bring. What does it look like to live as those who have been chosen by God for salvation in the midst of a lost and dying world. That's why we're studying 1 Peter. Matthew 5, in Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're returning to our study in 1 Peter of essential Christianity 101. We're wanting to learn from one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle Peter, what it looks like to live in this world for the glory of God. As elect exiles, as those who have been chosen by God for salvation, and yet because of that are experiencing increasing rejection from this world. How do we navigate the life that we have been called to in Christ Jesus for the glory of God? Peter's been showing us currently right now that one of the ways we navigate this life that we've been given in Christ Jesus for the glory of God is by making sure that we as believers respond and think rightly about our trials and our sufferings. As he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, we've got to arm ourselves with a certain way of thinking. And surely one of the ways that we've got to arm ourselves mentally is with the realization as believers that trials and hardships, ladies and gentlemen, they're going to come. They are going to come. We're going to face trials in this life for two basic reasons. First, because we're humans. Because we're humans. Job 5 verse 7 states, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, it's inevitable. Because we are human beings that are living in a sin-cursed and fallen world, we will face troubles and heartaches and difficulties. We will suffer losses. We will suffer disappointments. We will suffer discouragements. We will face pain and hardship and illness and death. We will experience everything that everyone else on the face of this earth experiences. Now, we as Christians ought to face all of those common troubles differently than the world does with faith and contentment and righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, but we will face them nonetheless just because we're human and this is the human condition ever since Adam fell in sin. 
But second, we ought to arm ourselves with the realization that trial and hardships are going to come just because we're Christians also. Peter's made this very plain repeatedly in his letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he told us that it is often necessary for our faith that we be grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 12, he told us that we as believers will be spoken against as evildoers. In verse 15, that we will be ignorantly maligned. Verse 19 of chapter 2, that we will endure sorrows. In chapter 3, verse 10, he told us that we will be reviled. Verse 14, we will suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 16, we will be slandered. This is a truth that Peter keeps on bringing up. That if you seek to follow Jesus on this path of eternal life, then you will face trials in this life. And so if we're going to navigate this life for the glory of God, we've got to arm ourselves mentally with the realization that trials and hardships are going to happen. Not just because we're human, but over and above that, because we're Christians walking the same path as Christ to glory. As Peter says later in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Trials and sufferings are sure to come. And so if we're going to navigate this life successfully for the glory of God, we've got to arm ourselves as believers with the believing conviction mentally that first, trials will come. And then second, as Peter's been showing us, that God is doing something in that suffering. That God is doing something in that suffering. You see, the unbelieving world, they suffer losses. They suffer discouragements. They suffer disappointments. And they think there is no reason or purpose behind it all. To be a believer is to acknowledge that as a lie. And to know that there is a God involved in every event who has a purpose and a reason, even if I don't know it. That is what it means to be a believer. That all of this pain ultimately has and will have a purpose. Now, even though many of us would say we believe that, I think about the ways that we often respond to difficulties and disappointments, that they often betray the true convictions of our hearts. See, I don't know about you, but One word that often describes how I feel when I start entering into a difficulty or hardship is the word trapped. Trapped. I feel like I'm trapped. Like this suffering or this heartache is keeping me from something that must be better and that I need to be free of this difficulty for me to finally experience what really is good. And what God must really want for me. That in the midst of difficulty, I often can begin to think that freedom is only found from suffering. From this heartache. From this disappointment. From this discouragement. But Peter, here in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, is flipping your whole world upside down. And he's saying, no... Freedom is not found from suffering. Actually, freedom is often found in suffering. Freedom is often found through suffering. And that which is truly good, and that which God really wants for me, often comes because of suffering. This is what Peter is going to show us in this passage. 
that if we want to navigate life correctly for the glory of God, we've got to arm ourselves with the mental conviction that God is doing something in our suffering and that that suffering is often the doorway through which greater spiritual freedom will be found. See, as elect exiles in this fallen world, there are three main enemies that seek to cling to us tightly, slow us down, and trip us up in our pursuit of God's glory in this world. Those three enemies, as I mentioned the last time, were the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, in this passage that is before us, Peter shows us that righteous suffering is often the tool by which God uses to free us from the grip of those three mortal enemies while here on earth. The last time we were in 1 Peter, we saw in verses 1 through 2 that righteous suffering frees us first from the flesh's passions. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why? Verse 2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. How? No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, righteous suffering reminds us that our comfort is not ultimately what matters. Ultimately what matters is the cause and the mission of Christ. To destroy sin, to draw near to God, and to bring others with him, with us, no matter the cost. The mindset that Jesus had in death, you and I are to have in life. And righteous suffering has that sanctifying effect that works to free us from our fleshly passions our selfish dreams, our personal ambitions, and it sets us free to start thinking about, wait a minute, my life is to be all about the will of God. So that's the first reason why it is better to suffer with Christ rather than to seek comfort alongside this world is because suffering frees us from the fleshly passions. Next, as we'll see in verses 3 through 5, righteous suffering frees us from the world's pressures. In other words, it causes us to not really care what the world thinks. And brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. And then finally, verse 6, we'll see how righteous suffering frees us from the devil's power. So as elect exiles, we have three great enemies. And it's not whatever circumstance you're in. It's not whatever discouragement you're under. It's not whatever loss or disappointment you're facing. No, the great enemies of your life are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And one of the most precious tools God uses to free us from those clutches and to impart to us greater spiritual freedom is the tool of righteous suffering. Because as Peter's teaching us here, righteous suffering frees us from the flesh's passions, the world's pressures, and the devil's power. So with that in mind, if you're able, please stand with me today out of reverence for the word of God as I read our passage today from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, 
They are surprised when you do not join them in the slain flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of God, whose statutes we keep, for he will never, ever forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the difference that he has made in our lives, that he has transformed our hearts, given us new affections. That to think, Father, that today we have come here to worship you, not because we were made to, but because we want to. To you belongs all the glory. And to think, Father, that you have kept us here on this earth. And we think about the affections of the lost around us. That they are literally, right now, this moment, being driven by their own passions. To destruction. Help us, Father, to demonstrate transformed hearts before the eyes of those who are lost. Help us not to jump in the flood. Help us to pull people out of it for your honor and glory in this age, in this time. God, make us different by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after Peter explains to us in this passage that it's better to suffer rather than to sin, because righteous suffering frees us from the flesh's passions, he then tells us another reason why it is better to suffer with Christ in this mission of destroying sin, drawing near to God, and bringing as many people with us as possible. It's because, second, righteous suffering frees us from the world's pressures. And that's in verses 3 through 5. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is a crisis passage that reminds us of the state of every single human being on the face of this earth. Peter says in verse 2, or in verse 3, excuse me, well, back in verse 2, he says, You ought to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he tells us why in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Man, this is a good word for those of us to hear who may have been saved for a while and are often tempted to think, well, boy, I'd really like to think what, see what the world has to offer. If that's ever been something that you've ever thought, then Peter's message here in this passage is for you. Because Peter says this, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles 
want to do. In other words, believer, you've already had more than enough time to dabble around in sin. So don't mess around with it now. And that is true whether you got saved at the age of five or whether you got saved at the age of 55. That doesn't matter. Whether you were saved at the age of five or the age of 55, that was enough time to be dominated and controlled and given over to sin. It was enough time to think that those many years you were dead in the things which would destroy you. The time that's passed suffices. It doesn't matter when you got saved. You've already had enough time to dabble around in sin and to walk in step with this world. And by the way, by the way, that's exactly what you did. You were given over to the eternal vanity of sin. Before you came to Christ and God caused you to be born again by his own great mercy and power, you were no different than the rest of the world. If you're here thinking... This morning as you're sitting here in church, or if you're sitting there thinking as a saved person, well, I'm here because there is something inherent about me that made me different than all of those who are right now headed to an eternity of eternal destruction, you are gravely mistaken. No, in the time that has passed, you are no different than any other unbeliever. You were given over to sin. You were given over to the dominating perversions of this world. You were in step with and swept along by its fleshly passions and pressures. There was no spark of hope found in your chest. There was no spark of life. You were dead. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then listen to this. He says you were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, just like Peter says, we used to be doing exactly what the unbelieving Gentiles right now want to do. There was no difference between your desires and theirs. None at all. No difference of affections. You had the exact same heart they did. The exact same desires. You loved sin. You wanted more of it. Verse 4. This is what made the difference. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you have been saved. See, we've been saved. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, and as Peter is hinting at in First Peter chapter 4, we have been saved from following the world. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that, believer. God in his mercy set us free from that compulsion to do what the Gentiles right now are wanting to do. To be born again means you have been set free from that. He has set us free from that. And so Peter's saying, don't go back to that way of thinking. Don't go back to what God has set you free from. Don't go back to what the Gentiles want to do. 
And Peter outlines for us exactly what that is that the Gentiles or the unbelievers, those who do not trust in Christ, who are not born again, what do they want to do? Well, he says at the end of verse 3, they are living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If you were to eliminate all law, and all government, what type of world would you find? A law, you would be marked by a society that is marked by sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is what the unredeemed want. This is what the unredeemed want. They want to immerse themselves in it. They want to be surrounded by, they want their lives to be buried in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I want you to notice first that the world has not changed at all. What the world, how the world wanted to live in the first century is exactly how the world wants to live in the 21st century. First, they want to live in sensuality. That is literally anti-morality. See, apart from Christ, the human soul is dead to any coherent and consistent sense of objective virtue and morality. Therefore, the unredeemed soul longs to cast off the restraints of morality, law, conscience, government, and God. They want to live without any moral guidance at all. An unbeliever deep down just wants to do whatever they want to do. Their their ultimate authority is their own feelings. And Peter says, brothers and sisters in Christ, you've been set free from that blindness. You've been saved from that bondage. So don't join them. Your ultimate authority is not your feelings. Your ultimate authority is Jesus. Second, they live in passions. That is, in evil, mindless, bodily desires. The unsaved world lacks true, you could put it this way, moral self-control. If it feels good, do it. The lost around us are driven and carried along by animalistic instincts, by bodily, physical, fleshly passions, and that is what ultimately matters. Peter says, you've been saved from this. Saved from that bondage, so don't join them. The Spirit has given you self-control. Third, the unbelieving world wants to live in drunkenness. That is literally an overwhelming intoxication. And it speaks, by the way, not only to alcohol, but also to inebriation and domination that comes from any other type of drug also. And so Peter's saying, you have been saved from this, saved from that bondage, so don't join them. Don't be controlled by substances, be filled with the Spirit. Fourth, they live in orgies, that is, in revelries. The word back then was actually used to describe the late night pleasure gatherings where frenzy, where the frenzy and intoxication would spill over into destruction and riots. Peter says you've been saved from that, saved from that bondage, so don't join them in that. You are children of light, not of darkness. You're people of prayer, not of protests. You're called to fidelity, not fornication. So fifth, they also want to live in drinking parties. In other words... Drinking for the sake of drinking, for the sake of getting drunk. Peter says you've been saved from that, saved from that bondage, so don't join them. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. Sixth, they want to live in lawless idolatry, which is a very broad term. In other words, they want to give their time, energy, and resources. They want to give their attention and affections to things rather than to God. God is not a part of their worldview, not a part of their priorities, not a part of their decisions. They cast off God's wisdom to worship idols, idols that promise to serve them rather than God, whom they have been made to serve. And Peter says, you have been saved from that, saved from that bondage, so don't join them. Love the Lord your God and Him only. Only shall you serve. This is the lifestyle of an unregenerate, unredeemed soul. They run to and they seek to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's what they live for. That's what they push for. That's what they vote for. That's what they long for. Now, of course, not everyone is as unrestrained in all of these activities as they might be, right? The conscience, the church, and the government rightly helps with that. But this is the lifestyle that deep down every unredeemed, unregenerate, lost, and unsaved person desires and wishes they could live. This is how the world has been, is, and will be without Jesus. They're drowning in it. And Peter's point is this. Believer, that's enough of that. Now that you've been delivered by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot, don't join them again. As Ephesians 5, 7 through 8 states, Therefore do not become partners with them. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And again, Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've been set free from that, believer. Set free from the world's pressures. So do not go back to it. Don't go in, give into it. Don't be conformed to it, even if you have to suffer for it. And you will. And I just have to throw out this application question, because I don't know where else it'll go. What, this sounds weird. What do you fantasize about? What do you daydream about? I might even ask this question, what do you dream about at night? What occupies the dreams and desires of your hearts? Because can I tell you, it is the heart of an unbeliever that dreams and fantasizes about the things that are listed here. It is a believer that recognizes, I hate those things because Jesus hates them. And I want to bring every thought into captivity to Christ Jesus. Where's your heart? Is it in the ark? Or is it in the flood? If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've been born again, then you've been set free from all of those pressures. Not that they don't exist anymore, but they don't have absolute consuming power that dominate your every waking moment, daydream, 
ambition thought. You've been set free from that. So don't go back to it. Don't give into it. Don't be conformed to it. Even if you have to suffer for it, and you will, as Peter says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. If you've ever worked a secular job, you know exactly what he's talking about. As one commentator wrote, the licentious who are bound by habits they cannot break, inflamed by lusts they can't extinguish, and are gravitated downward by a power they themselves cannot themselves resist, are astonished at the complete change in the lives of those believers whose whole aim in life is now the will of God. They are shocked by how strange and holy your affections have become. This is the effect that your life is to have on the world around you. Believer, I I have this question for you again. Do those who don't know Christ think you strange? Do those who don't know Christ think you strange? Because it says here, when we give ourselves to the will of God rather than fleshly passions, they will take a look at your life and they will be what? Surprised. Do they think you strange because they ought to? The way that you live life the priorities that you make, the way that you spend your time, your riches, your energy, your resources, it ought to make the world think, wow, that is very different from me. When we live not for human passions, but for the will of God, Peter says the unsaved world is surprised. They're surprised by how we don't run with them headlong in the same flood of debauchery that they're drowning in, that we're not following the course of the world anymore, and they think that's strange. And because of that, because we're going in a different direction, they malign you, they mock you, they speak evil of you. By the way, the ironic imagery that Peter uses here is astonishing, and it ought to be sobering. If you want a motivation to stay away from the world's sinful pressures and passions, listen to the imagery that Peter uses in this verse. Having just talked about Noah entering into the flood, into the ark, and how believers entering into Christ correlates to this, Peter then mentions here a flood. He mentions a flood of judgment that is likewise coming upon the whole world, even as we speak. And what is that flood of judgment? It is all the debauchery, all the actions, all the iniquity, all the excessive fascination, enslavement to sensual passions we see in society today. That's what he's talking about. See, just like Romans 1 teaches, the licentious, unstrained lusts that are overcoming the world is not a sign that God doesn't judge. It's a sign that God is actually right now judging. He's already turning men and women over to the debased mind and hardening them in their unbelief. And that ought to be sobering. And unless, brothers and sisters, unless God does a miraculous work of mercy in our day through us to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and, to, and to, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life by faith in Christ, they will perish. Perish. 
What a grievously sobering image. The whole world is drowning right now in a flood of iniquity that is carrying them inevitably towards destruction. And would you live for your own dreams and ambitions and hopes? Or would you live for the will of God? Peter's saying, why would you listen to those who are outside the ark that are drowning? Stay in Christ where you belong and don't even dip your toe back in those floodwaters. Why would you want to play around in the very things that are killing them? Believer, why would you? So that's why I say if, you, if your unbelieving coworker or classmate is watching that show, engaging in those activities, pursuing those priorities, and they really think that you should too, so what? Why would you want to dip your toe back in that when those types of desires are going to kill them? You have been set free from the pressures of this world, so don't go back to them. You are immersed in Christ, so don't immerse yourself back into sin. Why? Because the end of those things, as Paul says in Romans 6.21, is death. And that's exactly what Peter's going to say next in verse 5. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, you might be here this morning thinking, I've got time to repent. I've got time to get real with God. I've got time to trust in that you don't know how much time you really have. Just as Matthew 24, 39 states, just as they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, wake up, for you do not know what day the Lord is coming. Listen, friends, he's ready. He wrote it down. That's how ready he is. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. And you know, while that's a terror to unbelievers... While that's a terror to those whose lives are dominated by the affections that Peter has just written, as a believer, I just want you to know it gives me great comfort to know that Jesus looks upon this world and he is bothered by it. That he is ready at this very at any moment that the Father has ordained to rip those seals off that scroll, and he is ready to bring all the timelines of history to completion for the glory of God. He is ready. And those who do not repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls, they will give an account, Peter says. Literally, they will be paid back. And what are the wages for all of those sins going to be? The flood of debauchery that those who do not repent and turn to Jesus give themselves to. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And Peter says he's ready. Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready to return and to deal decisively with iniquity and injustice once for all. And Romans chapter 2 tells us that he will judge even the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? The wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ died on the cross, not because he had sinned, but because you had sinned. And he sought out of his own love and mercy and grace to pay the penalty that you deserved. He suffered beneath God's wrath in your place so that you could be forgiven. But God will judge sin either in His Son 
or upon the sinner. But he will judge. And he's ready. He is ready to return and deal decisively. And this will be a judgment from which no one can escape, just like in Noah's day. Whether you are living or whether you are dead, Peter lets us know every soul will stand exposed before the eyes of him to whom they must give an account. And so whether anyone, whenever anyone suggests to you, you know what, believer? The will of God doesn't really matter, right? You don't have to be so radical in destroying sin in your life. You don't have to be so radical in seeking to draw near to God. You don't have to be so radical in trying to bring others with you. You don't have to suffer so much discomfort for Jesus. Come on, jump on in. The water's fine. Live a little. When that happens, remember this passage. The water of this world and of complacent Christianity leads not to life but to death. Don't put your toe in and don't go swimming in the stream that carries sinners to destruction. Rather, pull them out. That's our mission. The whole world is drowning in a flood of iniquity leading to death. And when we suffer for doing good, we're reminded of this. That this world is not a friend to grace. This world is not our home. We're on a rescue mission. And so don't give in to the pressures of this world because Jesus died to deliver us from it. So that's why it's better to suffer rather than to sin because righteous suffering frees us from the flesh's passions. It frees us from the world's pressures. And then finally, and this is big, (laughs) righteous suffering frees us from the devil's power. Now I know as I go through this, you're probably going to think I don't understand the significance of this passage to my life. It might not be too long until we do. Because Peter writes this to those suffering exiles. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What a perfect conclusion to this passage. Peter says, For this is why the gospel, that is the saving message of Jesus Christ, was preached even to those who are dead. And the meaning there is even those who are now dead. Peter's saying, This is why the saving gospel was preached to people who've already died. It's so that they would have hope beyond this life. See, the gospel is good news, not just for this life. This gospel did not come so that you could live your best life now. This, this is good news for eternity. What a glorious reminder. This is why it is good to preach the gospel, by the way, even to those who are going to die. This is why it's good to go into prisons and to preach the gospel to those who are on death row. Because gospel is good news beyond just this life. It imparts a living hope of eternal life beyond the grave. When you embrace the good news of Jesus Christ by faith and are immersed into him who rose from the dead, even the most ultimate suffering you can ever go through, death itself is simply a path to eternal life. As the end of verse 6 says, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, the worst thing that suffering can ever do to you, believer, is the best thing deliver you from the devil's power of death and usher you into eternal presence and life of God because Christ is ultimately the one who holds the keys of death and Hades by his victory. And that's what Peter's saying. No matter what the world does to you, in Jesus you will overcome. As Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
So don't be afraid of suffering. Embrace it as part of your calling. Just obey the gospel. Just honor Christ Jesus as Lord. Just do whatever it takes to destroy sin, to draw near to God and to bring others with you no matter the discomfort and no matter the cost, for the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. As Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. See, rather than something that we avoid, righteous suffering should be something that we expect and embrace. Just as the early church did, we should rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It is a cause of joy to suffer for Christ's name. Can I say that this is a hope that you might think is rather foreign to you? Why do I need to believe this? Can I say right now we have brothers and sisters all around this globe, and this is the one hope that they're holding on to right now in faith. It's that the worst thing this world can ever do to you is give you exactly what your heart now desires. And it is not the flood of debauchery that is destroying the world. But now suffering can bring you the one thing your heart as a born-again Christian desires. And that is total freedom and glorious life in the presence of God forever. Transformed desires and a transformed heart. And hope. That is, that though we die, yet shall we live. And so, this is why it's better to suffer rather than to sin. Because righteousness, righteous suffering frees us from the flesh's passions, frees us from the world's pressures, and frees us from the devil's power. The lesson is simple but clear. Do you have the affections described in this passage? Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? Or does your dreaming and your fantasizing reveal a heart that is far from the heart of God? Are you in the ark of Christ or are you in the flood that right now is taking over the world? And then second, If you recognize, praise God. I'm not what I used to be. And the call is, believer, live like it. Don't focus on comfort or consequences. Don't worry about pragmatism. Or people don't follow opinions or feelings. Focus on Jesus. Be a consumer of the will of God, not the passions of the world. And just follow Jesus no matter the cost. Be radically committed to destroying sin, drawing near to God and bringing others with you, even if and when it means suffering, discomfort, and death, even if that means looking a little strange. Because you know what? When we finally abandon all those things and simply live for the will of God, the worst thing the world can ever do to us is the best thing. Set us free from the flesh's passions. 
Set us free from the world's pressures and set us free from the devil's power forever and usher us into the very presence of the one who's redeemed us. So Grace Chapel, this week, let's set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pursue the will of God, not the passions of this world. Let's remember the freedom that righteous suffering brings. And let's follow our Savior and do good no matter the discomfort, no matter the cost. Let's strive this week to be a little bit more different than the week before for the glory of God. If you need help in knowing how to do this, if you've recognized that you've been playing around with that which will lead to death, or if you have not even trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and experienced the freedom that He can bring to you, then I encourage you, please come and see me after this service, and I would love to talk to you about Jesus and the good news that He brings. This is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until he who is ready to judge the living and the dead returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, thank you for sobering us with your word. We think about how serious it must have been during Noah's day to be building the ark, to be pleading with the souls around him, to heed the warning, to take the offer of mercy and salvation to enter the ark. Father, help us to remember in the midst of this world that that we are in no less serious a circumstance. There is a world around us right now that is drowning. And they would seek to tell us to jump in. But that is not our role, Father. Our role is to reach out and to call on them to come into Christ. Father, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would give us grace this week to be students of your word and will that we might be changed by your grace and not be allured by the things of this world so that we would recognize these are not sins to play in. These are sins to be saved from. May we pursue holiness ourselves and may we offer the righteousness of Christ to those around us. God, give us grace to rescue those in the fire. We ask this in Jesus' name.